Diversity XA podcast, the show that brings together the people that foster inclusive innovation across Southeast Asia. My name is Belinda Ong, and I am the Managing Director of the XA Network. Every episode, one of XA's members will lead a fireside chat or panel discussion with other members, founders, or investors that have shaped the tech ecosystem in this vibrant region. If you like what we have to say, please follow or subscribe to our show. And do remember to tell your friends and rate us five stars so others like you can find and benefit from all of our great content. Show notes are linked in the episode description and you'll find notes and additional resources there. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you once again for joining us. My name is Belinda Ong, and I'm the general manager here at the XA Network. Uh, today, it is our honor and privilege to host Peng Ong as our guest speaker for the final installment of XA's Fireside Chat for 2021. Uh, Peng honestly doesn't need an introduction, but sometimes it's nice to have a refresher when you've had a career as long and as illustrious as his. So Peng, as you're all aware of, he's the co-founder and managing partner of Monk's Hill Ventures as a leading early-stage tech venture capital firm in Southeast Asia. Uh, Ping is an industry veteran with over 25 years of industry experience as an entrepreneur, founder, and investor in Silicon Valley, as well as in Asia. Prior to Monk's Hill, Ping was a venture partner at GSR Ventures in China. The firm is known for its investments in companies like Didi Chusing. And as an entrepreneur, Ping co-founded a series of successful companies, including Electric Classifieds, today known as Match.com, Interwoven and Accentuate, which today combined generate over a billion dollars in revenues annually. So Ping, I think it'll be great if you can start with your story. Monks Hill is known as one of the first Silicon Valley style VCs in this region, started by entrepreneurs to fund entrepreneurs. Maybe you could tell us a bit more about your entrepreneurship journey from Match to Interwoven and finally Accentuate. Specifically, how have those experiences shaped your investment thesis and influence how you've interacted with founders you've backed as the companies mature. Ping, please. So I'm glad to see how marketing kind of works. <laughs> <laughs> As entrepreneurs backing entrepreneurs, that's what we do. If you look at our partnership, I think four of the five of us were CEOs, founder CEOs. Uh, the one that's not was early on in the company that's now public. So all operator kind of partnership. Why do we think that's important? It's not essential today, but we think it's important. Throughout my career as a, as a founder from, first of all, even before Match.com, which was my first startup uh, that I co-founded, before that, uh, I was in two other startups and actually three other startups after grad school and employee number 21, employee number 200, 150, and then employee number 30, 40. I would come in pretty early and, and you get exposed to how a company is built almost from ground up. And I, I think that experience is just not easily reproduced in any other organization. And then when you go and start your own company, it becomes that background is really, really useful. Understanding that, trying to figure out. It, to me, entrepreneurship is a leadership problem. How do you go from nothing to something? And perspectives, the something you want to build at least from what I've been doing, needs to solve a, a ridiculous state of the world is how I used to describe it, right? You look at the world and, and you go, this makes no sense whatsoever. And then you go and try and fix it. And you need to be passionate about it, etc. 
that was match. It didn't make sense for people to do this on print paper to figure out how to buy something or sell something or get a connection somewhere. That was match uh, electric classifieds. Interwoven was doesn't make sense for hundreds of people to try and build a website without any coordination tools. And that's how Interwoven got created. And then the last thing was Accentuate where Karthik, I met Karthik there. He was one of our top engineers. And that was about trying, you know, requiring people to manage 20, 30 passwords in their heads. It makes no sense whatsoever. It's a much more simple problem from that perspective. And that's why we started that. I don't know if I'm answering the question. Please feel free to be interactive or a lot more interactive. I'm just going at it as the best I see fit. But if you want to tune me to something more specific, please feel free to do that. Yeah, I mean, we'd love to understand a particularly memorable experience uh, or example of how that irreplaceable training you said, working in a small 30, 40 person company, how did that translate when you were later on an investor? So I'll give you one example. It's, it's far back enough that the people involved will probably laugh at it instead of feel pretty bad about it. When I was early on in one of my companies, Interwoven, I put a manager in place to, to run engineering. And he's a good intellectual, PhD from Stanford, etc. But he is very focused on work. And halfway through version one, as we're building up version one, half the engineering team came up to me and said, please replace this guy or we're leaving the company. This is half my team. And it was mostly engineering at that point. And learned several lessons there. Don't put people in jobs that they're not good at or like doing. And then you have to make tough decisions. So I had to decide which half of the engineering team I was going to lose. Because the other half was, well, the manager is fine. So I, I chose, right? So there are a few people out there that are still reasonable friends that I basically asked to leave about 20 years ago. And when you're that small, I think we were five, six people, and you have to lose half the capability, it sticks in your mind. So that's early lesson on people. And that lesson on people keeps coming back over and over again. You need to make very clear decisions on people and fix them if you're wrong. So we did fix that. Uh, engineering leadership issue, but we also lost two very good engineers. Understand, understand. And sounds like you will be able to come from a place of empathy and being able to give very practical advice to the founders in your portfolio when you have to make equally tough decisions. Yeah. And just because you like people doesn't mean they're suitable for the job. So making very, very crystal clear decisions why person a should be doing job B or job two, right? And it's your job as a leader to make sure that the direct reports to you are all either improving or you need to replace them, right? There's never, this person is fine and I just leave them there forever because the company is scaling. And if that person is not improving with the company and, and scaling with the company, you need to replace them at some point. So that's your job, right? It's a tough job. I like to talk about the, some of you know this, uh, I like to talk about the burden of leadership. Forget about making the wrong decisions. Sometimes even when you make the right decisions, you hurt people. That's the burden of leadership. And 
is a choice of hurting one person or maybe a small group of people versus the whole team. And that's the burden of leadership. You've got to get used to it if you choose to lead. And you cannot wiggle out of that responsibility. It makes a ton of sense. The phrase that's really helped me is, please make the call. There's a lot of things, as would be obvious, people ask me, the, the CEOs are asking, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Etc. And this strategy versus that strategy. And I'll give them my opinion. Then I will say, it's your call to make. Please make the call. And the reason I've learned this over time is that if a leader comes to me with options and all that, and I say, yeah, go that way. And they go that way. It's no longer their decision. They didn't make the call. There's a certain lack of ownership of that decision. And I do this with my folks here all the time too. It's not, not just CEOs. If you are in charge of something, you need to make the call. I learned this not the hard way, actually, because, well, the hard way as an executive, because if you keep telling your executives, your VPs and all that, do this, do that, do this, do that, at some point, they don't own the decisions anymore. You've just got a lot of hands to do the work for you. So I'm very clear on what I call R&R, roles and responsibilities. If you own it, you've got to make the call. And when I started being a VC in China, that's when I actually first got into VC work. It was actually not that hard. It was less hard than I thought. I think your training as an executive prepares you to be a VC. If you're trained properly as an executive, well, let me back off. There's some command and control cultures that are present in our ecosystem. If you're exposed in that kind of an environment, that may be you're less prepared. But if you're exposed to much more of the Silicon Valley style where the VP of marketing owns marketing, aligns with the CEO on general directions and they go execute with the budgets, et cetera, hiring. If you're more used to that kind of management style, then, then you're very prepared to be a VC. And actually, I would love to build upon that and double click on that transition you made from entrepreneur to VC. What do you wish someone had told you when you make that transition? I got into VC almost by accident because I wanted to go to China to find my roots. And Richard Lim, who runs GSR Ventures, he said, hey, since you're going to find your roots and, and learn how China works, why don't you come do it with us as a venture partner? So I thought that was a reasonable idea. It turns out to be a great idea because there's nothing like doing deals in China to understand how China works. What I didn't realize is how much more knowledge history there is in VC to appreciate. Why do you need a certain percentage ownership in a deal, for example? Right? There's game theory behind that. It's a discipline that's been developed over 30, 40 years, the last 30, 40 years. And there's a lot of, if not a lot of it is written down. So you learn this through almost an apprenticeship kind of way of doing it. The best group that has documented some of this is Kaufman Foundation. So if you want to be a VC, figure out how to hook up with the Kaufman Foundation. They have a lot of that material, but still a lot of it is just learning. So I didn't expect there was so much learning to do because when I look at it from my point of view as a founder, it seemed like an easy, easy job. You just give up money and sit on boards. How hard is that? And I didn't realize how much work there is. And I didn't realize the depth of the strategy there is in being a VC. It wasn't less, whoa, I wish I'd known this. It's just a incremental pieces of knowledge. Makes a ton of sense. And the Kaufman Fellowship, I know that's uh, been slowly expanding internationally. Oh, it has a great number. 
yeah, yeah quite a number of people in Southeast Asia. Yeah. So I know you've been in the VC sector for over a decade now. And yeah. I'm quite curious to know, based on your perspective, like how has the ecosystem here evolved since you started Monks Hill? Like how have the terms changed? How have the founders and the problems they've looked to solve changed? How have the face of investors changed? I think that's the good news is the ones that started early, there's a whole bunch of us that started in you know, 2013, 2012, 2014, 2015. Most of us are still there and I think we've all matured. I think the interesting thing is there's a lot of different strategies out there, VCs with different strategies. Valuations have gone up, it's, it's obvious, and so it's much more of a founder's market now than before, which is great. And the VCs are more mature, but I still see a lot of what I call transaction chasing. Not transaction as in VC deals, but buying revenues, burning to buy revenues, that kind of thinking. Because I think I started seeing that in China with DST and Tiger and then SoftBank giving lots of money to companies to burn. We were in DT, we were in Erlama, you can see the burn. And then I thought, okay, I come back to Asia, that'll be gone. Well, and it started <laughs> in Asia. Um, I think it's a very transaction-based, sort of systems-based way of looking at building businesses that is taking a lot of risk on the locking of the market. You're assuming once you get to a certain scale, you become insurmountable. And uh, you can see the consumer response to this in Grab and in Bukalapa, the IPO. There's a certain view of where all this will go that might be different within the private banking sector, uh, the private equity sector versus the public market. I don't know, right? It's hard to tell. When the unit economics are not positive, when businesses are not really fundamentally making money, how do people look at these businesses? So that's very different across the different VCs in Southeast Asia. There are those that will, will fund this, what we've been calling negative blitz scaling. And folks like us, we want some reasonable unit economics before we invest, or some trajectory to reasonable unit economics. So actually, I'm quite curious to know, because you were actually talking about the Grab IPO, like mm -hmm. the largest US debut. Where do you see the Southeast Asian region headed to from here? And how is it going to dovetail with fallout from the COVID pandemic? I think COVID is actually good for tech because it forces everyone to drive to a, a more efficient economy where you can get to goods and services more easily, etc. So it generally, it's done more good than bad for the economy. If you're in travel, if you're in hotels and all, yeah, okay, it's not so good. But other than that, it's generally been good. My partner talks about coffee and froth. So the, the challenge in Southeast Asia is anything you look at has froth and coffee. So what is the coffee and what is the froth is a tough problem. So let me take a step back, right? If you look at China and you look at it, 15 years ago, right? And compared to today, today is 6 trillion in GDP in services. That's about half the GDP of China. And almost all that profit pool go to companies that don't exist or didn't exist 20 years ago. These are all tech companies that, that own, own the technologies that service China all the way from retail to logistics, to headhunting, to real estate, everything. So if you take the SIC code, and codes for all the different industries and you line them up TAM wise, you're gonna see a nice long tail kind of services businesses. And 
I would argue China's services sector is the most efficient services sectors in the world because it's new and it's all AI software driven, etc. What's happening in Southeast Asia, we are about 10, 15 years behind China, but it's happening here. You see it in retail, you see it in transportation, logistics, and down that TAM stack of values, right? We're in a company called Glynn's, and that's doing incredibly well. It's a tech recruitment company, and it's multiple times more efficient than the average recruiter. I've got an accounting company that is doing three times more productivity than the average SME accountant. So they're going to win in that service sector. So fundamentally, our economy, our services economy, which is about $1.5 trillion in Southeast Asia, that's being taken over by tech companies. The tech companies are not making technologies, enabling the services companies to be more efficient. No, the tech companies are actually services companies using tech to compete with the old school folks. So we're taking over. We're actually destroying a lot of businesses by being much more efficient. The old inefficient businesses are going to die out. This is true in banking. This is true in lending. This is true in everything. So if you look at it from that point of view, there's a lot of value being created in Southeast Asia tech companies. Regardless of fraud or no fraud, there's a lot of value being created. And the challenge is to look at each one of these companies and go, are you fundamentally creating value or has this been in hype? And that's why we get paid <laughs> as investors. We got to see through all this stuff and go, yeah, this is real. And the unfortunate thing is because there's so much money being flushed into the system today that there's a lot of foam on the coffee. So you could potentially be investing in foam and then find that the foam dissipates in a few years' time. I won't go into specific examples, but you can see it in the marketplace. So if you have a solid business, at some point that will show through and there'll be valuation associated with it. For, for example, one of our companies, our first investment in out of fund one is NinjaVan. They're pushing a billion in revenues. They'll break even before they go public. That's a real business. So there's no argument, it's a real business. And so the valuations will be there. Before we close, as a reminder, show notes are available on the link in the episode description. So do click through to get a summary and related resources. We hope you liked the episode as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. And if you did, please do spread the word about our podcast and take a second to rate us five stars. Thank you for joining us today. This was Belinda with the XA Podcast. See you next time.